This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine with Room Now, checking in from Baltimore, Maryland, on the final day of ACR Convergence. Uh, we've seen a lot of great reports over the uh, whole uh, conference that we've had so far. One question I think uh, that was answered by a poster out of University of Miami, Miami is uh, what to do with the patients with fatigue in rheumatoid arthritis and which patients do we expect to have benefits to have improvement when they come in complaining of fatigue in RA. So this study looked at 111 patients with rheumatoid arthritis and 52 of them repeat, reported high fatigue scores uh, at 12 months with diagnosis. So um, what, what were the factors that led to improvement in fatigue over time? Uh, in the univariate analysis, they found several predictors for improved fatigue. So female sex, non-smokers, and increased baseline fatigue appeared to um, improve better with treatment of RA. Um, depression showed a trend toward significance, uh, but did not meet it in the univariate analysis. It's worth noting, this is just patients uh, being seen with usual care of RA. There was no specific intervention that was trialed um, for uh, improvement of their fatigue. No, um, uh, no interventions of any sort other than routine RA care. When we get to the multivariate analysis, they find um, really two odds ratios stand out quite dramatically, the first being non-smokers were much, much likelier to improve with um, their fatigue. So the odd ratio was 7.6, that they're much more likely to get better fatigue as compared to the patients that were smokers. Depression, on the other hand, opposite um, signal in the multivariate analysis that their odds ratio is 0.17, so much more unlikely to have improvement of their fatigue. So if a patient's a smoker and depressed, you're likely to see them continue to be fatigued. Um, whereas if they're a non-smoker and, and they do not have mood difficulties, that's not a concern um, uh, or they're much likely to do better. Um, exercise was, was subjectively measured through, through the activity questionnaires. It was something I would have liked to see some more uh, objective measures of, of exercise because I would have expected to see uh, that play a role in fatigue in our patients. Uh, they asked about physical function, uh, but not specifically about quantifying exercise and, and breaking it down by that. Um, but I do think there are some very important notes for here that um, first, the impact of smoking. Smoking itself um, causes fatigue, uh, and that's something that's really important to adjust and modify for so many reasons in RA, but this is another thing that you can counsel your patient on um, to do better um, and to feel better. And um, thinking about mood disorders and if, if patients are fatigued, um, if it's related to the active um, RA inflammatory process or if there's uh, an underlying mood disorder that can also be addressed. So I think this is exciting because it's a common problem. It's something that comes up, uh, again, 52 out of 111 patients in this study. So almost half of your patients will complain of fatigue uh, and both smoking and 
um, and mood symptoms are modifiable if you can get them into uh, the right treatment options for, for both of those. Uh, so I think this is definitely something that could be translated into clinical practice. For Eric Dine, this is Room Now. Uh, this is the final day of ACR Convergence, and uh, we've enjoyed looking at all the abstracts and uh, presentations throughout the, through the meeting. Take care. Hi, I'm Jack Kush with Room Now. We're here in the office of Dr. Ken Sag, Chief of Rheumatology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. I've asked uh, Dr. Sag to join us to talk about this new recipe trial. So the recipe trial is aimed at treating patients with refractory gout with piglodicase and trying to use a DMARD as a way of suppressing the anti-drug antibodies. You know, these, the PEG is very immunogenic. It's kind of limited some of the efficacy and added to some of the toxicity uh, associated with piglodicase. This has refrained a lot of people from using it. So there have been trials so far, maybe using azathioprine or methotrexate and then mycophenolate. And then Dr. Sag stepped in and he designed this recipe trial wherein he chose mycophenolate. Ken, why did you choose mycophenolate? Yeah. Well, Jack, thanks for the opportunity to talk about the study we refer to as recipe. And as you've noted, there's been a fair bit of work previously, mostly um, observational and somewhat anecdotal, looking at different immunomodulatory drugs to try to attenuate the immunogenicity of peglodicase, which, as you pointed out, is really the, the limiting factor in using this otherwise highly efficacious therapy. We talked to rheumatologists and we talked to immunologists and we said, well, what, you know, what do you see as sort of the pros and cons of different immunomodulatory drugs? And there's you know, definitely pros and cons of mycophenolate, of methotrexate, of azathioprine. There is a large study underway looking at methotrexate. And I think that will be very interesting. And, and some preliminary data has already been presented for that. We had some concern that methotrexate, you know, the, a lot of the patients that we're thinking about treating have uh, had uh, non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis, you know, some drink alcohol. Um, methotrexate requires some um, gradual increase in dose. And so there was some, you know, potential safety concern about methotrexate, although arguably a drug that we're more familiar with and that we use uh, in, con in combination with our biologics in um, you know, the inflammatory arthropathies, RA, spondyloarthritis, et cetera. So we thought that MMF um, you know, had a lot of potential and um, rheumatologists are familiar with using it. We, we have a lot of confidence and comfort using it based on our experience in lupus and vasculitis in particular. So it seems to be a good choice. It was a head-to-head -head of everybody getting pegalodicase, and then uh, half the group got um, the mycophenolate, and the other half got placebo. Um, the primary endpoint was 16 weeks? Primary endpoint was at 12 weeks. 12 weeks. And then we followed patients off the either placebo or off MMF for an additional 12 weeks to see about the durability, you know, whether if you use an immunomodulatory drug for a short period of time, would you sustain durability? Now, keep in mind, this is really a preliminary study. It was largely designed as a pilot study. And while uh, it turns out that the, the difference between MMF and placebo was statistically significant, 
uh, you know, frankly, we're a little bit surprised with such a small study design that we were able to observe that. Yeah, in the short term, really impressive results. 86% uh, on mycophenolate achieved a uric acid less than six versus only 40% that were on the placebo. Uh, and then you follow them all going forward off the mycophenolate, and it'll be interesting to see how they do. I always thought that the benefit of this kind of trial would be really at long-term outcomes and safety kind of stuff, which seems that there's already a benefit on that in the short term. But um, yeah. talk about both the efficacy and safety from your view. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, the key with, with uh, peglidocase is getting more of it. it. You know, it works proportionate to how much you take. So I always tell patients, you know, if you get one or two doses of this, that's better than nothing. But we'd really like to treat people for, uh, you know, up to six months or so with this sort of, we see it as a debulking therapy. Somebody comes in, almost all these people in the study, and probably the experienced rheumatologist as well, is they nearly all have TOFI. And so we're really trying to, you know, reduce the TOFI burden often and trying to treat people who have failed other therapies. And so these are really a difficult group of refractory patients. And so if you can get them uh, on a longer course of case, you may benefit them more. And, and clearly 12 weeks is the starting point. Uh, you'd like to use it longer, but if, um, you know, 80 plus percent of them can continue it that long, that's it's a good start. I think this kind of data could should change some of the impressions and get move the hearts and minds to look into this because this is not just a debulking on those really horrific tofacious people. You know, there are people that are going to benefit from this because uric acid. This is well, this is a uric acid deposition disease and does lots of damage. So, um, again, congratulations on what I think is a really impressive result. What's the um, the end point? I mean, this is going to go on for. Um, uh, yeah, this study is concluded, and again, there's another study looking at methotrexate that you should okay. stay tuned for. I think that'll be very interesting. But I suspect that over time, uh, perhaps sooner rather than later, we may be moving towards using concomitant immunomodulatory drugs with peglidocase, particularly in people, younger people, perhaps people with uh, significant obesity, people that we know from some of the observational data seem to be at higher risk of developing immunogenicity. And uh, we're gonna really need to figure out who to consider this in, but um, it, you know, it's nice to see an RCT that actually starts to provide the answer to that important question. Ken, congratulations to you and your investigators and Dr. Khanna, the lead author on this. I think yeah, it's a really, really important great team approach and uh, appreciate uh, Pooja Khanna being the, uh, the lead on this and um, collaboration between UAB and Michigan with support from NIAMS as well as Horizon Pharma. So thanks to everybody and to all our patients who participated. Go back to work. There's more to do at the meeting, right? That's right. Enjoy ACR. All right. Bye-bye. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. So I just attended the FDA updates at the ACR 2020 virtual conference coverage for the ACR Convergence. And so if you have been living under a rock and or, or you're just not listening to the news, I'm gonna update you on what the FDA changes have been made in 2019, 2020 since the last ACR meeting. And this has been a big year for approvals for pediatric rheumatology, which is great because, you know, therapeutics have been so limited um, for our peds colleagues. So what the FDA did was they approved for patients with juvenile idiopathic arthritis over the age of two 
um, golimumab. So this was approved on September 29th, 2020, and they approve IV golimumab for both JIA as well as psoriatic arthritis in children. In addition to that, on September 25th, 2020, they also approved tofacitinib for polyarticular JIA. Now the tofacitinib dose is dose based on weight. This is where you have to take out your calculators and calculate what you should give. But actually, there's an easier way to do that. You can look under um, the websites for the FDA or you can actually go to the drug manufacturer's website. But here's the dosing. Tofacitinib dosing for JIA between 10 to 20 kilograms is 3.2 milligrams VID. And if the child is 20 to 40 kilograms, um, is four milligrams BID. And if the child is more than 40 kilograms, you dose them just like you would an adult. All right, the other labeling changes. So they did um, remove a warning label for belimumab. So they took out mortality as uh, one of the warnings. And this is based on recent updates and post-marketing research and reporting. They found that the risk for mortality in patients who have um, been receiving it for lupus was no difference compared to placebo. So they did remove that label. In addition, they did add um, to abatacept that angioedema and hypersensitivity reactions can occur, both in the sub-Q formulation as in, and also in the IV formulation. So angioedema and hypersensitivity reactions, that's added for abatacept. In addition to that, baricitinib, they did add hypersensitivity reaction um, as part of uh, the label now for that. And then for gabapentin and pregabalin, what we've been prescribing for our patients who have fibromyalgia, uh, they added respiratory depression as one of the warnings, okay? So this is with or without hydrocodone or other CNS suppressants. Gab gabapentin and pregabalin can increase the risk for respiratory depression. And then in terms of approvals for adult, um, so in June, kenakinumab was approved for adult onset Stills disease. Um, and then in May of 2020, ixakizumab for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, and that's at 80 milligrams every four weeks. And then they also approved um, nintendamnib uh, for progressive ILD. Um, so that's actually a big win, especially for patients who have interstitial lung disease that's been progressive from autoimmune and connective tissue disease. And then they also did mention that um, belimumab for their label, uh, they removed that, um, that black and African-American label where uh, may not be as efficacious that was removed. And then for secukinumab, um, they did get the secukinumab approval for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis as well as ankylosing spondylitis at the higher dose. So that's gonna change my practice actually because um, my patients with AS, they actually do do better when you use 300 milligrams every four weeks. So now you can do it without having to um, relabel them, right? And then there's also several biosimilars that are approved, two for adalimumab, and they're basically word salad, adalimumab AFZB and adalimumab FKJP. And then infliximab generic AXXQ and rituximab generic ABBS. So you'll be able to access generics um, for your patients and might be a little bit more cost-effective. So those are all the changes for the FDA in this 2020 meeting. I hope you're having a great day. Follow me on Twitter. And then you can also access information about what I just spoken about on the FDA website.
This is Dr. Catherine Dowd reporting for Room Now. So here we are, we're going to do our mid-meeting recap and talk about spondyloarthritis. We're joined by John Ravel from Houston and Olga Petrina from New York. Welcome folks. Hi, well, thank you for having us tonight. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, and I've, I've been over the whole program uh, and I, I, sh I share Eric's uh, 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 issues. I think there, there isn't a huge amount uh, that's, that's new to me that was being presented this meeting. There's a lot of, of, of uh, articles on, um, uh, on uh, treatment. Uh, and, and I think we're gonna talk a bit about that. There, there's a couple of, uh, you know, pulling back, there's some, some very interesting things being presented on the microbiome, uh, but really pulling back, uh, I think the most striking theme that's coming out with this meeting, whether we're talking about treatment, whether we're talking about disease manifestations or even genetic profiling is, is the role of gender uh, uh, and the gender disparities that, that we're going to see in it. And I think uh, that's some of the stuff that I'd like to, I, I don't know if Leanne uh, focused on that last night, but that is what really struck me the most uh, in going over all these abstracts Again, pulling way, way back and looking at the overall picture here. Probably, although there's not a lot new in that regard, Nonetheless, one of the most compelling things that comes from this meeting. Interesting, uh, and, and I think our it really helps. I think um, better characterize patients, and the more we can characterize them, maybe the better we can treat them. Olga, maybe you should start by telling us um, something that you've seen so far in the first two days that really stood out for you. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the the matter of gender differences that's something that stood out to me, and that's the abstracts that caught my attention. Interestingly enough. So there are two abstracts that I really wanted to, to discuss, and they all pertain to gender differences. And the first one I will mention will seem like have nothing to do with it, but I will drag you into the woods of gender differences along the way. So the abstract 1303, which speaks initially about the prevalence of undiagnosed axial spondyloarthritis in patients with anterior uveitis and chronic back pain, starts out with the fact that a lot of patients have been uh, referred to us from the ophthalmology clinic actually have symptoms of inflammatory back pain for a very long period of time. And interestingly enough, from the most of the referrals who had recurrent arterial uveitis, 87% of the patients had inflammatory back pain way before they were referred to rheumatology. From those patients, uh, about 53% or more than 53% of the patients meet the criteria for lower inflammatory lower back pain, and uh, close to 30% of them had radiographic, radiographic findings that could, could be consistent with axial spondyloarthritis. So as a result, about 23% of the patients were eventually diagnosed with XPA uh, as they met the clinical criteria. And about 40% in addition to that were uh, requiring a follow-up with the suspicion of possible XPA. And when we speak about this undiagnosed pool of patients, what stands out the most to me is the gender issue. So what happens is all the patients, female in male and male, have similar distribution of HLA-B27 positivity, duration of pain, severity of the disease, and you, you name it all. 
But when it comes to the actual diagnosis in these studies, 33% of the male patients were given a diagnosis of ACT-SPAR and only 13% of the female patients were given the same diagnosis. So I'm wondering what's contributing to that. Is it the difference in the symptoms? Is it the difference in how patients relay their symptoms to their doctor? Or is there something phenotypically different about those patients? Well, disease expression in women is, uh, with spondylitis has always been problematic and quizzical to me. John, what's your take on that? Well, there's, there's actually a lot of data being presented at these meetings. Actually, some from our group, but some from a number of other groups. Uh, uh, and that is the strikingly higher prevalence of peripheral manifestations in, uh, in women with non-radiographic and radiographic axial spinal arthritis, including enthesitis, uh, including peripheral arthritis. It's also striking looking at some of the clinical trials. Uh, now, there's only one that didn't show any difference between genders, but uh, like there was one, for example, Maria McGray presented from, from uh, Metropolitan Hospital in Cleveland. Uh, with ixekizumab, as well as a number of others, that have shown that, that women respond less well to biologic therapy than do men. There's an abstract being presented, uh, I believe, on, on Monday. Uh, this is the same group. This is Lee and Matt Brown. They're looking at a different cohort. They're looking at the Swiss cohort, looking at 800, 850 people from that. And what they're trying to do is to use that genetic risk profiling sco uh, uh, score that they presented as a plenary session at ACR uh, two years ago. This time they applied it to a different cohort, the Swiss cohort. And lo and behold, if we look at, at women versus men with radiographic axial spinal or ankylosing spondylitis, there were no differences in the genetic score. However, when they went to the non-radiographics, the men look uh, with non-radiographic axial spinal look just like the men with radiographic axial spinal using this polygenic risk score. The women, however, look like the general population. So striking differences there, which I think uh, is real problematic as we're trying to make a diagnosis. And it all more, the more underscores the gender disparity in this disease. Hmm. So we're about midway through the ACR meeting. John, you just touched on something that's coming up that's not been presented uh, as of yet. Olga, I know you have your schedule all planned out. What are you looking forward to tomorrow? What are you looking forward to for the rest of the meeting? in uh, uh, axial spinal arthritis? So I'm looking more, uh, I'm expecting more data on again, gender differences or baseline characteristics of the patients that are different that can actually help us predict how patients would respond to treatment based on not only gender, could be other, other characteristics. So that's something that's interesting to me. And uh, let's speaking of, again, differences between the patients, like this morning, the, the abstract was presented, the full data for executumab studies. Again, talking about the gender difference in baseline, patients who were female, more likely to have higher vast dive force, uh, just based on the higher nocturnal pain, peripheral joint pain, and uh, overall uh, fatigue while male patients uh, tend to score higher on CRP and higher level of HLA-B27 positivity is observed there. So I think that where we start out is important because if patients have different pattern of the disease or the, or the, the picture of the disease, they may respond to treatments different. So I would be curious to see more abstract on the treatment outcomes pertaining to different patient characteristics. Hmm. John, what else you mentioned? Uh, and well, as the data here do do uh, uh, 
uh, do show that women tend to respond less well, and that's clearly being seen in the current clinical trials. Correct. John, what are you looking forward to as far as uh, reports or studies that may come out um, on Sunday or Monday? Uh, you know, I didn't, I, I, there, what, there wasn't really a lot on Sunday, but Monday is chock full of, uh, in the, in the spinal arthritis, uh, especially in the, in the poster session with a lot of very interesting abstracts, looking at different disease subsets like inflammatory bowel disease, some interesting papers looking at the microbiome. Uh, one shows that, that the differences in the microbiome correspond to disease activity. Another one looking at calprotectin levels and showed that, that, that fecal calprotectin as a biomarker uh, corresponds even in patients with AS with, with uh, villus damage and blunting. So uh, these are uh, things that I think to me are very interesting as far as pathogenesis is concerned. How about the meeting overall? How's it affected you? John, you, you, you're notorious for you know, being all over the meeting and, and meeting people and, and learning in your own style. Um, how has this virtual thing affected you? Um, well, it, 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 you know, for better or for worse, uh, it, it's a lot, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to connect to sessions. Sometimes the slides don't come regularly. But you and I really like about this is the ability to go back and review all the sessions. And so I would, I'm going to predict that at the end of this meeting, I'm going to learn a lot more because I, I actually tend to get distracted by the networking. <laughs> this way I'm having to focus on the science and that's actually a pleasure. Olga, what about you? Well, what I like is the flexibility of it. And I must say, I like it a lot lately. So I can be anywhere and still attend the live session if I wanted to. And similarly, I can just postpone some abstracts and posters for later on, like knowing that they're pre-recorded. What I hate about this meeting is the, this lack of human communication. I really enjoyed meeting my colleagues and having a little chat or a cup of coffee and talk about things live, I think that's that's a big minus for the virtual meeting. All right, folks, we're gonna, we'll wrap it up and thank you for joining our group discussion. This was a lot of fun. Um, we wanna thank our audience for watching. Uh, tune into Room Now for more videos, more stuff from ACR 2020. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks. everybody. So we're joined now by our RA faculty for our mid-meeting recap. We're joined by uh, John Kay from Massachusetts and Catherine Dow from Texas. Uh, hi, folks. Hello. Hey, Jack. Hi, Artie. So the perfunctory beginning of what do you think of the meeting so far, John? Well, it's very different. Uh, I have not left my house. I've not left my office other than for dinner. Uh, it's uh, I've not put the 10,000 steps on every day, uh, but you can get from session to session very easily. Uh, the other nice thing is that you can uh, see a session after it's occurred. Uh, at the annual meeting when it's live, if you miss a session, tough luck. Uh, but here you can go in and look at it at your convenience again and again. Uh, there was a session today, Gerd Burmester talked about the history of biologics. And he had a slide about serendipity. And I miss the serendipity of walking through the exhibit hall and not just meeting friends and other people whom I've not had the privilege of meeting before, but also passing by a poster that I didn't expect to look at 
and learning something and piquing my interest. So the fact that you're limited to seeing those things that you seek out uh, limits the educational experience somewhat. Catherine, what did you tweet today about serendipity? Oh, that basically when um, you're trying something for one thing and it ends up you're finding out something else. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, you stumbling onto me. <laughs> well, that's because you're, you're, you're petite and I stumbled over you actually on rounds one day. Um, that is true. No, but um, I agree with John. I mean, I, I actually like the virtual format, but next time I'm going to get a hotel room and expense it to you because like my kids keep busting in. They're like, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? And I'm just like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm in the middle of videoing. <laughs> Artie, how are you handling that with your boys? Uh, it's tough. I mean, it's you know, everybody's doing much more stuff at home. And I guess the, and the question I put to the panelists is, uh, you know, you are announced they're going to be hybrid. So would you all, you know, all things being equal now, would you, would you say, you know what, this visual, this, this virtual is pretty good. Um, or no, I, I miss going poster to poster and, you know, just meeting old friends and stuff. What are you going to do? I'm old fashioned. I'd like to attend in person because, um, I do like to give hugs. I, I like to, you know, get the freebies. I <laughs> And I just, not only that, get, get this, I'm actually got vaccinated um, or I'm in the vaccine trial now for COVID-19. Yeah. And so hopefully I did get the real thing. I mean, the first injection went well. I haven't grown an extra head yet, but um, I think so far so good. I'll get my second injection in a few weeks. We'll be looking so for that. Jonathan, were you going to go to you or are you going to this virtual thing hook you? Oh, surprisingly, I haven't been on an airplane since March 7th, and I've forgotten what it's like to get frequent flyer miles. Uh, it all depends on how safe or unsafe it is. But aside from that, the Europeans probably won't let us in. Uh, it'll depend on public health. Uh, will travel bans still be in place? My institution uh, won't let us travel. Uh, if we travel outside of the country or even to an unsafe state, or have to take an airplane flight, we have to quarantine for 14 days on our own time. Yeah. Let's get into RA. And you guys have been covering RA. There's been a lot happening at this meeting so far. Um, let's start with uh, uh, something that's really impressed you. Catherine? Well, I think it started out with the great debate. We have Vivica Strand, and then we have Michael Weinblatt. I mean, it was a beautiful discussion. And the audience actually, so, so discussion was basically after methotrexate um, failure in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, what do you do next? Would you go straight for a JAK inhibitor or would you go for a TNF inhibitor, right? And so they each presented their case, you know, Vivica Strand was like, well, it's oral, you know, it's quick on, quick off. Um, it has great efficacy. I mean, just as good of an efficacy as TNF inhibitors. And yeah, it can cause shingles. Yeah, it can cause VTEs and MACE if you use a higher dose. And then here comes Weinblatt coming in. He's like, one word, 22 years of experience. And um, so, you know, and I don't know whether that is trying to scare us because we're afraid of the new and we want to stick with the old, you know. Um, but he has a point, you know, it's something that we're familiar with. Yes, insurance is going to cover a TNF inhibitor before they're going to cover like a small molecule in certain states. 
Um, you can use it in pregnancy. There's multiple indications, anything from rheumatoid arthritis to uveitis, spa to hydatinitis, and now immune adverse uh, events from um, uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So, I mean, yes, there's a lot of use. So that begs the question, like, what would you do? And that's something that I kept in mind throughout the last few days that I've been at ACR, because I'm coming across these really good posters, you know, posters about like, you know, there's a meta-analysis on head-to-head -head jack inhibitors that of, um, they're looking at systematic reviews from UT Southwestern, and they're talking about how, you know, they're, they're comparing UPA, Berry, TOFA, and filgotinib to um, like the TNF inhibitors, and they found that perhaps UPA and Oh, okay, Jack, you got your hand raised. Tell you're, me. you're way over 45 seconds. I'll All just, right, I'm, I'm, sorry. Just I'm so excited about this. This is awesome. Well, I, I control I control the, the, the and anyway, well, I want to tell you one thing. Michael at uh, Room Now Live that Artie and I run was asked on a panel that is with John O'Shea and, and other RA experts, what drug are you going to give your, 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 your mother or your sister? Um, methotrexate, a TNF inhibitor, a JAK inhibitor. Everybody in the panel said a JAK inhibitor. And they weren't necessarily, I can't reason why they would be forced to say that. But so I found it interesting that Michael's arguing the other point, which really feeds into the rheumatologists who always want to use TNF inhibitors. But let's move on. John, what did you like that, uh, so far at the meeting? Well, there have been a whole bunch of interesting things. Uh, I think that it's the year of the lung. Uh, you've got a couple of abstracts about rheumatoid arthritis interstitial lung disease. Uh, Jeff Sparks presented an abstract that showed that ILD was more prevalent among older patients with rheumatoid arthritis. He also presented an oral presentation where anti-citrullinated filigrin antibodies seem to be a biomarker for the development of interstitial lung disease. Uh, a talk that I'm looking forward to tomorrow at the plenary session looks at citrulline reactive B cells in the lungs of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis and at-risk rheumatoid arthritis. So the lung is sort of the alpha and the omega. Uh, it's the uh, organ in which rheumatoid arthritis might start, and it's the end result of, uh, of established rheumatoid arthritis. So the lung is really becoming a rather prominent topic uh, at this meeting. You know, uh, Jeff, uh, um, he did last year at ACR, his own brass review showing a lot of lung stuff in ILD. And this was a, a claims-based review where he showed all that stuff where lung is seen, it was 5% of the population claims data, but it was associated with death, um, you know, and infectious death, uh, cancer death, but most of all respiratory deaths. So it is a, it's a really bad player. Absolutely. An abstract today by Jeff, and I think both of you may have hopefully saw that, the RA scene, the tapering intercept and that generated a lot of interest. Some of it about what background Jeff was using, uh, what, what castle was the formation of the background for his Zoom call. Uh, but what did y'all, did y'all get to see that? What did you think of tapering methotrexate uh, versus tapering intercepting people on combination? Um, that was, uh, I think, really a very definitive study on, on tapering, which is a very important topic. Absolutely. Uh, I did a video for Room Now today, uh, so I'll give a plug for that. Uh, people want a more in-depth discussion of that abstract. Uh, tapering is a, a theme at this meeting. Uh, on Monday, there's the Norwegian study, which looked at stable versus tapered uh, TNF inhibitors in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are in remission. Uh, 
Jeff's study sort of follows on the PRESERVE trial and the PRIZE trial, which looked at uh, tapering uh, versus discontinuing uh, either etanercept or methotrexate. Jeff's study was different from those. Those studies looked at patients with low disease activity or remission uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Jeff's study looked at patients who were in SDI remission, stable SDI remission. Uh, the definition of the activity was uh, patients with very well controlled rheumatoid arthritis. There wasn't a strict definition of uh, control at the time of entry, but uh, he showed very nicely that uh, getting rid of the methotrexate uh, was the better way to go. That if you stop methotrexate, the Tannercept continuation of monotherapy seem to control remission or continuation of both, but much better than if you stop the more expensive etanercept. So the bias is always to try to stop the more expensive drug, but here the better outcome comes when you stop the methotrexate. Well, if you look at patients too, I mean, what would they prefer? Most of my patients prefer to stay on etanercept and stop their methotrexate if, because, you know, it's convenient, it has less side effects, they're not losing their hair, they're not having like some of the oral um, side effects, nausea, vomiting, and having to have their blood monitored every three to four months. Well, my patients like it because they can drink alcohol. <laughs> oh, my patients don't drink. They're good. <laughs> yeah. They're Texans. So it's about um, a couple of minutes left. This, I know you all have your schedules planned out thoroughly. What are you, uh, what are you very excited about seeing in the remaining couple of days of the meeting? Well, there's more to see than there's time to see it. Uh, certainly the ACR rheumatoid arthritis management guidelines, which are going to be presented on Monday, are going to be very interesting. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be novel, but it's going to be a synthesis of past knowledge. Uh, there's a session on Monday about predictors of rheumatoid arthritis responses, uh, where there's a Mayo Clinic study that used machine learning uh, to look at pharmacogenomics to come up with an algorithm for methotrexate response. This is a, a theme where machine learning is being used to do a lot of things. There was a great abstract on Friday looking at machine learning to read uh, hand x-rays and look at joint space narrowing. Really very elegant study out of Taiwan that might actually give us the sharp scores that radiologists are reluctant to do because of the lack of time. Uh, there are, there's another abstract on Monday using machine learning to determine a rule to predict response to cerilumab, Ernest Choi, uh, Peter Taylor's looking at whole blood transcriptional changes following uh, filgotinib administration. And then, as I mentioned before, there's that tapering study out of, out of Norway that's gonna be presented. So there's lots of good stuff. Uh, and on Sunday, the plenary abstract about citrulline re reactive B cells in the lung. Uh, and then an uh, interesting session at 3 p.m where Ron Van Vollenhoven, Peter Taylor, and Mike Hollers are gonna talk about resetting immune tolerance uh, to prevent rheumatoid arthritis. So really, uh, we've come a long way since the first ACR meeting that I attended in 1986, uh, where we didn't have biologics and we certainly weren't talking about remission and we weren't talking about prevention. So it's a very exciting world that we're entering. Catherine, what are you looking forward to? Well, tomorrow, I mean, early in the morning, they have the Thieves Market poster. And, you know, I'm like a sucker for good titles. They have titles like Disease of the Soul, Think Beyond the Obvious, and Practice What You Preach. I mean, come on, that's that's such a grabber. Um, and then afterwards, I want to attend this lupus lecture, actually. 
It's a state-of-the-art lecture, The Future is Now, uh, presented by Dr. Mary Crow. Um, they also have a conflict around that same time about the ULAR treatment recommendations for RA, psoriatic arthritis, um, and whether or not you should follow algorithms in your clinical practice. Um, and then on Monday, I'm gonna definitely attend the guidelines for RA, JIA, and also the FDA update on safety. You know, there's a lot of stuff that uh, is gonna be presented. Um, is there anything that you wish was gonna be presented that's not on the program? One, uh, 10 second answer for either of you? Is John still there? Did he? I'm oh, still he... here. You <laughs> left me speechless. Uh, yeah, okay. There's so much on. Well, there's not a lot on biosimilars this year. Uh, so, but I'm not sure how much uh, more there would be to present about biosimilars, uh, given the reluctance of the United States to allow us to use them. It's going down every year. Artie and I have just been tracking it. It's a uh... 19 this year, down from about 25 last year. Abstracts. Mm. Yeah. All right, folks, we want to thank John Kay and Catherine Dow for joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now, and this is my big opportunity to rant on the new 2020 ACR guidelines for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. They were presented today. I think there's been a lot of discussion about them so far. It's a long document, there are a lot of recommendations. You know, uh, the process was long and arduous, I'm sure. 81 PICO questions. This is a, revi a revision of the 2015 guidelines. And the reason to revise them is because thinking is always changing and certainly we have new drugs. I think there's five new drugs, including ceruliumab, two JAK inhibitors, uh, baricitinib and apatacitinib. So, they came up with new guidelines. I wanna start by saying congratulations to the committee for their effort. Um, these are good friends, smart people who've done a good job trying to place into some formula how we should manage RA, which is really difficult and takes a lifelong of learning to know how to in fact do. So codifying it in a few pages is almost impossible, which is now my great opportunity to step all over it. I got nothing but red flags and detours on this thing. So I, wait, before I start my rant, let me just get dressed for this. So hold on a second. Stole this from Costco the other day. They didn't seem to miss it. Okay, here we go. All right, I think I'm ready. I think I'm, everyone gets the message. How do I look, mom? All right, so I'm gonna try to do this fast. Here's my rant. You can go through it on your own pace, but you should note number one, there's a total of 44 recommendations and 37 of which are conditional, meaning it was sort of like this. We had a vote. This is the best we came up with. We couldn't say it's strong. It's conditional or they're lacking evidence. So that's number one. A lot of these are conditional. It's expert opinion and you may not agree with the experts. Number two, the language is medieval. My goodness. Conditional this, strongly recommend that. If not long, then short. I mean, it's really when it re when you read it or when you have someone else read it to you, it's just painful to listen to. Um, third, um, you know, DMARD naive patients who have moderate um, to high disease activity, I got no problem with their choices there. It's the usual things, methotrexate, and then moving on. Um, I got a problem with, however, low disease activity. So DMARD naive, Patients who have low disease activity, they recommend first hydroxychloroquine, 
Second, conditionally, of course, uh, sulfasalazine and sulfasalazine before methotrexate and methotrexate before leflunamide. You may like that I, I idea. That's all about safety. It's not about what works best. Shouldn't you use, especially in DMARD naive patients, your best drug first? Is hydroxychloroquine and sulfasalazine your best drug first? Or is this all about safety? And of course, there's absolutely no data on these choices. This is all about preference. It may be patient preference, and that always trumps physician preference, and we know that. So I got a gripe with that. Methotrexate dosing. They had a lot on this, and this drove me, just drove me crazy. So they certainly recommend you should use PO dosing over sub-Q or parenteral dosing. However, if the patient has signs of toxicity, they recommend that you should either go to split dose oral or parenteral sub-Q or increase the dose of folate. By the way, the first two options are idiotic. If the patient's having intolerance by going to sub-Q or any other parenteral form or oral split dosing, you're delivering more drug. You're gonna get more toxicity, not less. So I'm not sure where these guys came up with that one. Sec the, la the third choice of increasing folic acid, we do it because we don't ever have anything else to do, but that's not shown to work for anything other than drug discontinuations and maybe lowering LFTs, and, and that's about it. Look at the Cochrane review on that. So anyway, that drives me crazy. Uh, of course, they want you to do those things before you switch to another DMARD, and that may be your only choice. You know, the next recommendation was if you're not a target, then do treat the target. That's an old recommendation. They thought they had to bring that one out. They say if you're on maximum doses of methotrexate, they recommend that you switch to a biologic or you add in a biologic or a targeted synthetic as opposed to adding in sulfasalazine and hydroxychloroquine and going with triple DMAR therapy. What? They want you to go more expensive rather than cheaper? Does Jim O'Dell know about any of this? I don't think he's on the committee. Obviously the cost effective measure would be to use simpler therapies that's actually what's recommended in, in the ULAR guidelines. They want you to go with the things that work best. Yes, I think that they may work best, but the evidence of that is, oh, this is all conditional recommendation. There is no evidence for any of that. Next, if you're on a biologic um, or a targeted synthetic and you're not doing well, they suggest you switch to another class. Shouldn't you be allowed to use an IL-6 inhibitor twice, a TNF inhibitor twice, uh, even a, a jack inhibitor twice before you're switching to another class. That guideline didn't seem to make any allowance for that. They have a guideline on tapering, which makes sense. They then go to what they call special populations. This is really special, if you know what I mean. God bless their heart. Nodules, they recommend methotrexate first. Well, that's really special. And if not methotrexate, then another, another non-methotrexate DMARD. There's no evidence of any of this. Again, we all, all of us don't know how to treat nodules, honestly, but to codify it in a recommendation, I think was quite kind of a little bit risky. Um, what about pulmonary disease? Any kind of stable pulmonary disease? They come out and say methotrexate's okay. That's brilliant. We, that's what really should be in there because the risk of methotrexate is a risk for hypersensitivity pneumonitis, not worsening of ILD. Then they talk about heart failure, class three and four heart failure, should be given what treatment? They say a non-TNF biologic. Again, absolutely no evidence for any of that, none. I mean, it's been studied. Patients with RA 
you know, with heart disease can take TNF inhibitors just fine. It all comes from the very old Enbrel trial back in about 2002, 2003, the Renaissance study and whatnot, where there were marginal signals there. Um, use your best drug first. Clearly, if someone is on a TNF inhibitor and develops heart failure, yes, switch to another class of medicine. That does make sense. Lymphoproliferative disorder, you say? Yes, rituximab. It's an indication of rituximabs. That does make sense. Like they got that one right. Another one they got right was hepatitis B. They're, and these are very smart recommendations. Antiviral therapy is recommended for hepatitis B patients who are hepatitis B core antibody positive and going on rituximab. Doesn't matter what their hep B surface antigen is. Core antibody with a negative hep B surface antigen is a low risk situation. But if you're going on rituximab, it becomes a high risk situation. On the other hand, um, if you have patients who are B surface antigen positive, they need to be on uh, antiviral therapy no matter what, or not take the biologic. And the ones where you can use biologics and targeted synthetics with very low risk, like 2%, are patients who are B surface antigen negative and who have FB core antibody positivity, plus or minus FB surface antibody positivity. Next, if you have NFALD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it's okay to take methotrexate if they are in fact stable. If you are on rituximab um, and you have hypogammaglobulinemia and you've not had an infection, you can continue the rituximab. So I like that. They got two that I don't necessarily like. One is, I have to change because my notes are on the side here, a prior serious infectious event, um, they recommend that you use a conventional synthetic DMAR to treat such patients. If they're already on a conventional synthetic DMAR, they suggest you use another conventional synthetic DMARD or add on another as opposed to going to biologic. There's no evidence for that. Here, you're in a very difficult situation. Patient has a serious infectious event or more than one um, and they have active disease. Do you use a biologic where there's this worry of, of infections? And remember, infections is related to number one, inflammation and then the disease. Uh, and then maybe lastly, the drug. So at some point, you might have to take a risk with a more aggressive therapy, either targeted synthetic or biologic in people who are not responding to conventional synthetic DMARDs with the hope that you can control inflammation and lessen infectious risk. Very difficult situation. They've tried to put it to paper. Maybe the actual manuscript will have more granularity on that very difficult management situation. And then lastly, there's no provision in any of the guidelines for risk factors. ULR guidelines still do have poor prognostic risk factors that changes the treatment options, meaning if you're high titer seropositive, if you have extra articular manifestations, if you have erosions, if you failed multiple pre pre prior therapies, that's not in these guidelines because there in fact is some evidence to say that the poor prognostic factors are not quite as meaningful as we make them out to be. Nonetheless, it is a difference between the ACR guidelines and the recently published 2019 ULAR guidelines I know I'm gonna get into trouble for this one, but that's why I'm wearing this bulletproof safety vest. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in for more.